1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. My usual co-host Mark Rotella is snowed in today, but I'm here to bring you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. For Valentine's Day, I'll chat with Jeannie Lynn about her romance novels set in historical China, and then PW Deputy Reviews editor Gabe Habash will tell me about the most anticipated books of spring and summer. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. At number six on the fiction hardcover list, we have B.J. Novak's One More Thing, Stories and Other Stories. I love that title, Stories and Other Stories, and it's 64 fun and funny short stories crammed into a single volume. Uh, It's Novak's first collection, so uh, Stories and Other Stories is definitely an accurate description. And the collection feels somewhat uneven at times, according to the Publisher's Weekly Review, but uh, that's more like a series of playful asides. Some of the entries are just a few lines, uh, perhaps because Novak has worked harder on the more substantial stories, and they have a pleasing feel of being written by an author in complete control of craft. So the publisher announced that they would be doing a first printing of 150,000 copies, and again it's at number six on our hardcover fiction list, so pretty impressive start. Also on the fiction list. At number 12 is Cell by Robin Cook, not to be confused with the Stephen King novel of the same title. Uh, This one combines plausible developments in artificial intelligence with current concerns about the number of available general practitioners in medicine. We say this is one of Cook's better recent thrillers. Uh, It's about a radiology resident whose fiancé dies as he's sleeping next to her, and that begins a, a whole round of intrigue And, of course, medicine makes it easy to bring in a lot of life-and-death decisions. So the truths behind the deaths are both logical and surprising, and we say that they enable Cook to engage with some serious medical ethics issues. On the nonfiction list, Glitter and Glue by Kelly Corrigan joins the list at number 12. Uh, This is a transformative period in her life in the early 1990s as described in this particular memoir. Uh, Corrigan is a college grad determined to see the world and find adventure. Uh, She traveled to Australia where she ran out of money and became a nanny. So this uh, sort of mundane job actually gave her kind of a window onto a different way of life and and the ways that the, the family that she was working for was trying to carry on uh, after the children's mother had died. So uh, the PW Review says that the authors, fans, and newcomers alike will welcome this story which probes the depths of bonds between mother and daughter. And again, that's number 12 on our hardcover nonfiction list. And at number 14, I just want to give a shout-out to Jennifer Sr., who was our guest a couple of weeks ago on the radio show. All Joy and No Fun is there on the uh, nonfiction hardcover list, again, at number 14. And, of course, this is her book about the paradox of modern parenthood, and if you hit our website at publishersweekly.com PWRadio, look back a couple of weeks, you can find her telling us all about what she means by all joy and no fun. So it's uh, of interest to the parents and future parents out there. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Jeannie Lin will tell us how her novels explore the lives of the Tang Dynasty's strong and sensitive women. I'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Our guest today is Jeannie Lin. She's the author of several romance novels set in historical China, including the forthcoming novel, The Jade Temptress. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Um, so tell our listeners a little bit about the Ping Lee Mysteries. Well, the... Um the, the idea
0: with these is I, I was doing research, um, on just the courtesan culture in the Chong dynasty and, uh, you know, there was, sort of a red light district that was famous right in the the capital, the capital city. And um, it was, you know, similar to geisha culture, but uh, I would say completely unique from it in the ways that, um, you know, the women there were really valued for their uh, literary merit of all things, Um, and also their ability to kind of host or or keep order (laughs) among among the scholars and among the uh, politicians and bureaucrats that would, would hang out there. Um, and along with that, there was just a lot of potential for both intrigue and romance because um, all of the all of the upcoming scholars, you know, before they took their exams, they would hang out with these courtesans, and this was where they would maybe meet and make good connections with, you know, with higher-ups, um, you know, so getting into the right parties were, was really important, so the, the courtesans were a bit of the gatekeepers to that. And it was also a lot of poems, um, I like to just kind of look through poems of, you know, during that that period what sort of topics people were kind of romanticizing and there were a lot of poems of these men when they were young and and students just romanticizing and, and, and writing about these women that they found so talented and fascinating and, and beautiful. Um, so that sort of sparked my imagination. Um, so coupled with that, uh, I also enjoy reading, there's a series of mysteries um, called the Judge The Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And um, he's, he's often called the Sherlock Holmes of uh, of China. So he was actually a, um, a real magistrate uh, during the Tang Dynasty. So he's a real person. But a series of uh, fictional mysteries were written about him. And what I really liked about reading those mysteries is it's kind of a fun way to kind of visit that culture and that era because he would he would kind of walk through the city and he would meet kind of the the you know, he'd meet boxers and courtesans and businessmen and he would just kind of uh, I guess to have a survey of all walks of life while he was trying to solve these mysteries. And so um, I thought, you know, that, that's a great way to kind of get, you know, get uh, people exploring, you know, this this uh, this capital city and, and this uh, courtesan culture by, by having a mystery that kind of brought our, our hero and heroine, you know, through these different walks of life.
1: So, what, what's the mystery at the heart of the Jade Temptress? You actually—it sounds like you have a very similar character there—a policeman who gets involved in the, the courtesan culture.
0: Yes. Um, so with the the Jade Temptress. Um, it's, it's though it's a standalone. It is it is bringing in some characters that we we first saw in the the first book, the Lotus Palace, and um, in that one, um, it, it explores the, the sisters Min Yu, the, the courtesan, in her story, and uh, along with the the new constable that came to town, and uh, sort of he, he was the darker, more. Ed- Enigmatic figure in the first book. Um, uh, kind of an- another thing that I've always wanted to write about is sisters. So you know, in the first book, um, you have Ruiying, who is who is, is the maidservant, and this is her sister, who is the elite courtesan. And um, in this one, you know, she sort of uh, she was a suspect in the first book, and then so she still has a bit of a contentious relationship with Constable Wu. Um, you know, who is who is tasked with with uh, investigating. These crimes. So, uh, coming from, from that background where they're a little bit, um, at opposites, uh, but also kind of fighting an unspoken attraction for each other, you know, that's, that's where the book starts out. And, and, um, you know, when she gets caught in a murder or caught once again, in, as, a, as a suspect in a murder, she kind of has the choice, you know, does she, um, you know, does she confide in, in this constable, you know, and, and kind of take him in or does she, you know, try to hide. And so she kind of takes being the kind of woman who wants to always take the upper hand. She decides, you know, he's going to come after me anyways. Let's, let's confide in him. Let's bring him in and maybe get him on my side versus, you know, trying to, to, um, you know, be my enemy or be my opponent. And that's sort of the, the start of their, of their relationship.
1: So, why focus on the romantic adventures of people who might be seen as uh, belonging to lower classes? A lot of historical romances are very much about lords and ladies, but that's not the tack that you take here.
0: Um, I think part of what um, part of what I like uh, about these particular people, um, especially in, in this culture, the courtesan culture, is that uh, they they can kind of see both ends or, or both uh, sides. Of the coin, because they deal so much with the upper class and nobility, mm-hmm. um, but they also deal with the lower classes and the seedier side. And I think that's also what I wanted to explore. Is there's there was a lot of beauty in this time, but there was also a lot of kind of under you know the, the underbelly <laughs> of society as well. Um, and I think it's interesting to see those two different um, those two different sides of the coin. And these people, you know, the, the constable who on one side works with. Politicians and magistrates and people who are on the upper echelon but also work for the lower class. He, he can see both sides. And as a courtesan, Ming um, also sees both sides of that, so it gives him that perspective. Um, from a personal perspective, I think I've, I've always been intrigued by just um, kind of the idea of, of meritocracy during this period in the Tang Dynasty. It was a a lot of the writings talk about uh, just kind of the. the Poor, not not necessarily poor. You know, there was still a lot of um, a lot of limitations for the peasant class versus the merchant class, and then versus the the scholar scholarly class. But um, there was the potential for upward mobility. Um, the idea that if you were honorable and hardworking and talented, you could move up in the world. And I think, from a personal perspective, you know, education has just been so important in, in you know in my life and my family. I used to be a, a high school teacher. That that idea is just To me, it's very romantic, the idea that um, not only could you find the love of your life, but you can, you know, find yourself a better life through your own, you know, through your own good works.
1: So it sounds like you have a lot of interest in the Tang Dynasty. Why that era particularly? I mean, China has a very long history. There are any number of periods (laughs) that you could have set your novels in.
0: I always tell people that the Tang Dynasty is very similar to the Regency um, uh, for, for you know, people who are lovers of English history, um, the Tang Dynasty is, is a very kind of special place for, for lovers of Chinese history. And uh, it's it's the golden age. Um, there's actually several golden ages, but it's one of the golden ages of, of Chinese history. And it's also kind of covered a lot in, um, in a lot of literature and movies. And it's just a fascinating period because of, uh, for me, because of the really strong women that um that the period was known for um you know specifically empress, uh you know empress wu and her daughter um princess taiping were very very large figures um in that era but not just again not just the empresses and princesses but there were politicians who were women who were uh courtesans um some of the, uh, the survive, you know mo- the courtesans who were most uh, known, I, I think or, uh, many of them came from the Tang Dynasty, and their and their you know poetry has survived to this day from that era. Um, so I think those women were my muses, and, and they continue to be my muses. And then because of that, I think there's also a lot of writing that survives from that period, and also writing about and by women that survives from that period, and, and that that's fascinating to me.
1: And speaking of women, you had mentioned always wanting to write about sisters. Why is that? What's the appeal there? I think um, me and my my sister
0: are very very close. My my little sister, I call her. Although you know we're both grown now, she just had her same child. I um, have always been really close, and she, uh, you know, she did a lot of my, re- a lot of the data reading and critiquing for me early on when I first started writing, and so that relationship has just, you know, she, she both taught me a lot, <laughs> you know, as much as I've taught her through the through the the years, um, and I think that bond has just been so special to me um, that I always wanted to be able to write uh, something, a, a bit of sisters, and, and I think uh, a little bit of our relationship kind of comes out in, in the relationship between the two sisters in, in these books. Um, how they both kind of in different ways try to protect each other and how they both see each other's weaknesses um,
1: and strengths. That makes perfect sense. I hope she appreciates that you uh, (laughs) you you wrote that into your books. So I don't know if she recognizes it, but uh, um, it's there. So were these full-length novels for the HQN line a big shift from writing shorter books for Harlequin historicals?
0: I um I think they, a little bit of a shift. I felt like I had more freedom to explore um the world a little bit deeper and also explore some secondary characters a, a little bit deeper. Uh the historical books are, you know, it, technically they are pretty long books for category. They're they're between 75 and 80 um k, you know, anyway, so close to 300 pages. So I felt like in terms of length it was it was um not too much of a stretch, but I think, in terms of just the expectations, I was able to add a little bit more breadth to to the story and also depth to the story.
1: Your covers prominently feature Asian men and women, which is obviously very appropriate for the stories that you 're writing, but also quite unusual for the romance world. Did you have to fight to get covers that accurately represent your books?
0: Um, no, no, and I think that's one of uh, been just one of the the real joys of um of working with Harlequin is, is they, they've done a fabulous job on the covers. And I think from the very first cover um, that they did uh, for my books, Butterfly Swords to the latest covers, I can really see them starting to kind of embrace <laughs> the look and the feel, uh, you know, I can see the growth there as well. And, and I've just really enjoyed giving them input on, you know, what, what you know what kind of clothing and, and what kind of you know jewelry and, and, and what kind of things are are typical of the period. Um, but no, it wasn't a fight at all. And, and a lot of people wondered about that. And I, I think when the Harlequin decided to publish these books, they really uh, committed um, themselves that that this was this was a book about China with Chinese characters, and there was no need to hide that fact. In fact, uh, they were going to celebrate that fact.
1: Did you have any trouble breaking in with these books? I mean, again, obviously, they're they're not uh, very run-of-the-mill. <laughs> I, I, it's hard to tell
0: because it seems like, you know, it, it, I think it was a challenge, um, and it continues to be a challenge to just look for and find, you know, where the readers are, um, you know, finding new readers and introducing them to these books. But I think it's a challenge for almost any book in the market. Um, I, I would definitely say you know, in terms of romance, where readers are looking for something familiar, and that's what they're going to go to first, and also where they're looking for read-alikes, you know, um, other authors that write the same thing, and if they like that author, they'll they'll kind of go to kind of a, a similar author that writes a, a similar book, and they, they you know, want a, a little bit more variety, but they still know what they like. Uh, that's been a challenge, just kind of being one of the few authors that write historical Chinese romance. Um, so I, I think it's more been, been a challenge of that, of, of finding the readers. Um, in terms of breaking in, uh, I, I think I got lucky. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, a little bit of luck always helps, but I think I got lucky in terms of getting in front of maybe the right person at the right time, who, who found it just a, an interesting read, and who and wanted to pick it up. But once I got picked up, um, I think I've had a massive amount of, of support from within the industry. Um, from my publisher, as well as you know, from bloggers and from um, from bloggers and from you know uh, review journals and things like that. So that's that's really helped as well.
1: And uh, for Valentine's Day, since this is going live on our site on February fourteenth, what have you learned about love from writing romance? <laughs> I think
0: what I've learned from writing, and I think even more importantly, reading romance is there's really a romance and a love story out there for everyone. And um, I think that's why I, when I was, was first starting to write, a lot of people wondered. They said, well, why romance? Why don't you make it a fantasy story? Or why don't you write a market historical similar to Lisa C. or Amy Tan?" And And I said, you know, in my heart, uh, I want to write romance. And for the stories I want to write, I feel romance is is going to be the most accepting of the sort of adventure tales or the sort of intimate details, you know, about the lives of of these women and men. Um, And so that's what I've learned. I think romance as a genre um, and just romance as as just the the breadth of stories they have, they're really accepting. And uh, I think there's something, a place for everyone. (laughs) You just have to find it.
1: We've been talking with Jeannie Lynn, and you'll be able to find her book, The Jade Temptress, in stores on March 3rd. Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash will give us a glimpse of some exciting books coming out this spring. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash is here to wet our appetites for spring's big books. Hi, Gabe.
2: Hi, Rose. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. It's delightful to have you here, as always. So, Louisa, a few weeks ago, gave us this kind of fly-by overview of the whole announcements issue, but I know that you want to delve more into the literary works.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um,
1: Tell me what you got.
2: We actually have a a lot of uh, good books coming out for the next six or so months, um for the spring and uh you have the typical big names that you're going to see in spring since spring and fall are the two big uh release windows um so there's stuff like larry mcmurtry has a new novel um about doc holiday and white earp uh called the last kind Words saloon there's joshua ferris's new novel the tries again a decent hour matthew quick has a, another adult novel called the good luck of right now his last one was silver linings playbook which was a hugely okay. successful um book and movie Mm -hmm. michael cunningham snow queen um and then elizabeth mccracken has another collection of stories that's uh outstanding that we starred um some of the really really big highlights though um that i wanted to point out to the listeners are let's start with uh, Lori moore which is her first collection in 15 years it's bark uh, which we starred and said was just as funny and touching and has all of the traits that all of her huge numbers of fans uh, come to expect from her writing. Um, It's her first collection since Birds of America Mm -hmm. and um, it has, you know, the typical Laurie Moore tone and like one example is um, in one of the stories, the final story in the collection uh, the narrator stops her teenage daughter's onslaught of scorn uh, by undressing and you know, thus mortifying her daughter into silence. So it has that sort of um, Laurie Moore typical Situations.
1: And when's that coming out?
2: That is coming out uh, shortly in March. Excellent. Another uh, big name is Emma Donoghue. Mm-hmm. Um, her book is called Frog Music. It's out in April. Um, it's her first really first real literary crime novel. And it's a little bit of a departure from Room, which is what she made her name for. Um, and it's, it takes place in um, San Francisco in the mid-1870s. And it follows a murder, a real-life murder, actually, uh, of a girl named Jenny Bonnet and um sort of the aftermath and the effects of the crime on the city which was um in the middle of a heat wave at the time and was also experiencing um a pretty big epidemic uh, disease epidemic at the time so it goes into like all these burlesque parlors and um it deals with like frog catching and emigrants the life of emigrants and so we also started that so it seems like it's going to be another big book of the season
1: when well, you say it's a, a literary crime novel does that mean it, it'll have sort of crossover appeal that mystery readers will like it
2: i'm sure i'm sure her all the fans that liked room you know the book it'll be good for book clubs um and you know people who like their crime novels and also people who like their their uh, literary books will it'll appeal to all of them yeah great right. another big highlight is uh all of all our names by dean Mengestu, and that comes out also in march um, and this is also another immigrant immigrant story, and um, it's uh, has a little bit of a pedigree. He's a MacArthur fellow. Uh, his previous book was How to Read the Air, and he does cultural differences really well. And and this one follows an African narrator, and sor- there's a sort of um, storyline involving switch switch personalities and uh, changing countries, and it's you know it's it's got a pretty big scope for. A relatively short book so that also seems to be one of the bigger literary uh releases of the, s- of the spring
1: i feel like books about identity just are always big we're yeah. always fascinated yep. by that topic of who are we really who are people really
2: yeah and there's so the all of our names all our names is uh two men and a, and a woman and there's sort of the relationship between the three and just the evolution in our star review it just talks about the evolution of the relationships over 300 pages it's just phenomenal and Um, the reader's just going to not know what to, what to expect next. Um, it just ends up in a completely different place from where it starts Mm -hmm. Two other books that actually are paired up really well, even though they, they're completely different. Um, the first is they're both about the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. Um, the first is redeployment by Phil clay, which is a debut collection. Um, and that is Phil clay is a former Marine and it's from the U S perspective. On the other side, there's a book from Hassan Blasim. It's called The Corpse Exhibition, and that is the Iraq conflict from the Iraqi perspective. And we, bo- we start both of the books. Uh, the Blasim book is out uh, this month in February, and Phil Clay's redeployment is out in March. And um, I'm, I'm sure they're going to appeal to different audiences, or there's going to be you know some overlap between the two. But no matter what you pick, it seems like they're both strong strong books for the season. Phil Clay was in Granta and um, Corpse Exhibition is also a collection of stories and it's just about refugees and the terror of the the occupation at the time and it just renders the Iraqi consciousness through war extremely uh, viscerally.
1: Wow so that sounds like some pretty powerful hard-hitting stuff.
2: Yeah and it's just really interesting that the two are receiving such strong support and they're they seem to be about this about similar topics, but they're just handled so differently because of the difference in perspective. And the blaseme is translated from Arabic, and uh, Phil Clay is is a, de- a debut author uh, stateside, so it's just really nice matching the two up. So the last the last book um, is probably not going to have the broad appeal of McMurtry or Laurie Moore, but it's a book that I personally loved and thought it was uh, one of the stronger books I've read this year, and it comes from Grove. It's called The Antiquarian. And it's by uh, Gustavo Patriao. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, it's also a debut. It's a novel. It doesn't come out until June, but uh, put it on your calendars now. It's it's outstanding. It's both uh, impeccably written and a page turner. It's a mystery. It's a literary mystery. Uh, the narrator is in a, is a Central American, is in, a, in an unknown Central American country, and he's called to visit his friend, who is he hasn't spoken to in years, and his friend is um in an insane asylum for murdering his fiance and what happens from there is he's drawn into this sort of underground mystery in trying to figure out what the real events were that happened and it's just fantastic writing it has uh sort of an ethereal quality and it's also extremely visceral there's some some pretty grotesque moments there's a lot of um actually really beautiful writing about disease which is really strange but he hmm. he just does Uh, descriptions and imagery so well so that's the antiquarian and that's out in June so put that on your calendar
1: it's great to see so much fiction and translation getting attention I feel like that's been a long time coming
2: yeah it's it's I mean Grove is uh, a great publisher for that they're always good for uh, books in translation and this one is you know translated from the Spanish and um, I was just I was blown away from page one it's just phenomenal
1: Well, Gabe, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about those highlights of the literary fiction of the spring and summer. Thanks, Rose. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash PWradio, and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.